Welcome to Episode 4 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 7,500 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. This month's podcast features Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and Dr. Joseph Scheiber, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Critical Care at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. In this episode, they will discuss post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Good morning and welcome to another great episode of American Academy of Emergency Medicine Critical Care Podcast. Today's topic is going to be post-cardiac arrest management and really post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with a friend and a colleague, Dr. Joseph Scheiber. Dr. Scheiber is an associate professor of emergency medicine and critical care at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. He's also the medical director of intensive care at University of Florida and St. Vincent Southside Hospital. He's a distinguished author and speaker, and it's with great pleasure that I'm talking to you today, Joe. How are you doing? Good, David. Thank you very much for inviting me to do this. I appreciate it, and thanks to AAEM for this opportunity. Well, it's always a pleasure. So today we're talking about post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Post-cardiac arrest is a significant syndrome, as we see an approximately 325,000 patients who suffer from cardiovascular disease, and a significant of those patients will end up in the emergency department. Out of those patients, only a very small percentage of those patients, only 7.6%, will survive to the hospital discharge, and that's a pretty significant low number. So we're going to talk about how we can improve the care for those patients. So, Joel, do you want to kind of give us a definition of what is really post-cardiac arrest syndrome? Sure, David. It's a complex pathophysiological state that occurs after the resumption of spontaneous circulation. It usually involves really four large components, post-cardiac arrest, brain injury, post-cardiac arrest and myocardial dysfunction, pretty significant systemic inflammatory response syndrome, as well as the combination of the ischemic and then reperfusion injury of the main organs, brain, as well as myocardium, hepatic, renal, so forth. And then the fourth component, which sometimes is left out, is that there's still the persistent underlying acute pathophysiology, typically on top of some other chronic pathology, that caused the original arrest, that unless it's identified and dealt with, will lead to persistent ongoing instability or or another cardiac arrest. So those four main components make up the post-cardiac arrest syndrome. And all of us have been dealing with this for, you know, since there's been resuscitation care, but it's only been relatively recently that we've actually named and identified it. And I think we're still kind of in the early phases of trying to improve our care, just as we've, you know, recently have made good strides improving the care of patients in in severe sepsis and septic shock. I think we're kind of catching up to that with post-cardiac arrest. 
I agree. And, uh, you know, I just got back from the AAM European meeting, which was a great meeting and had the opportunity to discuss with some of the leaders in post-cardiac arrest care from Sweden and from France. And uh, you're right, it's, it is an evolving syndrome. It's actually an evolving recognition of the disease where the patient is now not labeled as, you know, the code that we're going to leave on the side, but the patient's going to need actual uh, early goal-directed therapy and aggressive care. So I want to go over a case. So I had a 67-year-old female that comes in via EMS. Patient was found down, uh, unknown what happened, unwitnessed, but patient was found in a systole. And by the time the patient arrived to the emergency department, the patient is as a king airway in place, she has an IO in place, and now she has a return of spontaneous circulation. So why don't you go ahead and take us through how you would manage this, and then I'll tell you how the care evolved. Okay. First, I, probably a couple initial comments. Number one, that she was had an unwitnessed arrest is, is recognized as one of the poor prognostic factors for survivability. The fact that it was a non-VT or VF arrest when she was, well, when the initial rhythm she was found in being asystolic also goes against higher chances of survivability. The only other relatively well-studied prognostic factor from those original presentation would be really the total time of duration before return of spontaneous circulation. So it's, it's good in this case that we did get return of spontaneous circulation, but we're already kind of starting off a little bit behind the eight ball. So she has a King Airway in place. She has a IO in place. The number one thing to start out with is just as if this was any other patient that is critically ill is going to be optimizing her oxygenation and organ perfusion. So probably I would start out by One, getting some quick information from EMS and anyone else around about what may have been the precipitating events from the arrest, because whether this was purely a primary cardiac arrest, which the definition of that would be whether it was cardiac ischemia-induced or a primary cardiac dysrhythmia, would be dealt with very differently if it was going to be a secondary arrest, which would be something from respiratory, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, medication-induced, traumatic-induced, or many other causes that didn't go on to causing a secondary cardiac arrest. So some quick information would be very helpful. So you're 100% right. So we, uh, the time of the arrest was actually eight minutes. The patient's past medical history was unknown, but EMS had obtained that she was, had some nausea and vomiting. And, you know, right away after we got a return of spontaneous circulation, my first, my first big interest was, is this an ischemic event versus not ischemic? So we did a 12 lead EKG. 12 lead EKG showed a sinus rhythm. There was no ST segment elevation. So you touched on the initial management of oxygenation and ventilation. And I think that's a huge, huge concept because I do think that we have to really secure the airway of this patient provide oxygenation and ventilation without over providing, you know, too much oxygen to the patient. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, in the in the early phases after return of spontaneous circulation, absolutely, you want to have oxygenation really optimized, especially if you're concerned you're hearing about some nausea and vomiting. If you think that this may have been an airway issue or aspiration, then yes, I think probably getting a definitive airway, you know, being very cautious, but exchanging out the king airway for a definitive ET tube. And after the 12 lead EKG ruled out, at least, well, it's hard to say ruled out. A 12 lead EKG without definitive STEMI is, is helpful in saying it was less likely that that was the underlying cause. We do know that, that EKGs post-arrest lose some of the sensitivity of picking up STEMIs as they would be in someone prior to that. But at least in a decision tree without seeing, you know, an, uh, overt ST elevations or a new left bundle, you would be guided away from going directly to the cath lab. And then probably, again, trying to get some improved IV access also. IO certainly is very helpful, but in someone who's going to be being actively resuscitated, we're probably going to need more than that. So I fully agree with getting a definitive airway, a chest X-ray, the 12 DKG, and then probably better intravenous access to begin volume resuscitation as well as likely you're going to need to, to have other medications to help stabilize this patient. Right. So we successfully intubated the patient with an 8.0 ET tube. We placed her on assist control using protective lung strategy, meaning 6 cc's to 7 cc's per kg, and to minimize her plateau pressure to less than 35. We initially started around 100 percent and we're not able to titrate it based on O2 saturation. O2 saturation initially was only 86 to 88, even 100%, and 10 of PEEP. We did successfully place a triple lumen in the subclavian, and now the issue is patient is significantly and remain persistently hypotensive. We have no blood pressure, palpable, She's molded. She seems some sign of cyanosis with poor circulation. So at this time, there was a discussion between, let's start around pressors. Now, is there any new data? I use the sepsis guidelines of starting, you know, using Levafed as the presser of choice since it's less arrhythmogenic and we didn't know if there's any, this was an arrhythmia. So I started the patient on Levafed. Any new data or any new things I should be considering? There isn't any specific data on what the best presser of choice would be post-arrest. I think right now the surrogate guidelines for, for sepsis would be similar. The only difference would be that for severe sepsis and septic shock, especially in the early phases, is much, much more a uh, distributive, you know, a primarily a vasodilatory and endothelial dysfunction so that, you know, with norepinephrine is, I think, rationally so, the, the presser of choice for sepsis. Post-cardiac arrest is very similar to sepsis in that there is going to be this massive SERS response. There's certainly going to be an endothelial dysfunction, but a lot of it is particularly the cardiac dysfunction, dysfunction in ionotropy and lusotropy. So not only the con contractility, but relaxation. So the filling and contractility of the heart is being impaired. In that case, it probably would be just 
it's fine to use dopamine if the person's is not already significantly tachycardic. Because again, going back to the data from sepsis, the reason why the mortality seemed to be higher at dopamine was that it was quite more arrhythmogenic, as you just cited, particularly in patients that had underlying uh, ischemic cardiac disease. So the last thing you want to do when the person's in shock from underlying cardiac failure is try to flog their heart and make their heart rates higher and higher. But if their heart rate is inappropriately low, meaning they have not mounted an appropriate heart rate response. So I would say some people get confused and say, well, the person wasn't bradycardic. You know, their heart rate wasn't 50s or even 60s. So I don't think I need dopamine. Well, honestly, if someone is in shock and their heart rate is not probably 80, 90 to 100, I would say that's an inappropriate heart rate response. So Dopamine would also, I think, be fine in this condition, but I also think norepi would be okay. So that was a long way of talking around the straight answer that I don't believe there's any clear data on this. And I also agree with what you were doing since her oxygenation, since her oxygen saturations were on the low side, then you have to continue going with 100% oxygen. There is certainly a movement to try to not have over-oxygenation or to do a so-called controlled reoxygenation, But the only thing that we know of worse than too high oxygen tensions and, and over-oxygenation is still failure to deliver adequate oxygen delivery to the tissue. Yeah, I cannot agree more. I think, you know, in the time actively resuscitating this patient, it's only 30, 20 minutes, so 100%. 30 minutes, even for an hour, I don't think is that toxic as long as the patient needs it, um, since we're continuing reassessing and reevaluating this patient. So now we're trying, I believe, in post-cardiac care more just also as, an end, as a goal-directed therapy, where I'm going to have to try to achieve certain goals. I'm going to try to get, I'm not a you know, big believer of CVP, but I'm going to try to push, since we had a triple lumen, you know, we had a CVP on this patient, which was only six. So, you know, we started giving her two liters of fluid. Uh, I'm a strong believer of ultrasonography in the emergency department. So I was able to do a quick bedside cardiac emergency echo just to estimate the ejection fraction. And her ejection fraction is grossly diminished, only around maybe 5% with very poor wool activity. So at this time I was you know, thinking, okay, this is cardiogenic shock. I need to start increasing the, pre-optimizing her fluid. And I also need to think about giving her an anotropic medication. And we started the patient on dobutamine. That's pretty much, I think, textbook, David, for exactly what I would suggest also. Again, CVPs, I agree with your statement also that I, I don't necessarily think that the sensitivity is great, but I also uh, think that following a trend with a CVP can be helpful. So you first placed it, you saw that it was quite low, but you also used additional information that you had with your bedside rapid ultrasound assessment to see that her cardiac, you know, car cardiac filling and, and contractility was really poor. You, I'm sure you probably did throw in looking at her IVC, probably that goes along with 
the CVP to see that it was probably underfilled and collapsing with respiratory variations on the ventilator. Absolutely. And, uh, I go back to, you know, I, I think a lot of us use Manny Rivers really as a, as a guide and really as a kind of a role model. And I remember a couple years ago when he gave a nice talk at the uh, ASAP critical care section on endpoints of resuscitation. And as he went through a case that he had some video of in the ICU where he practices there in Detroit, and he showed a patient that had a central line with a CVP and an SCVO2 and had an A-line with an Edwards catheter going to give SVV, and he had, I believe he may have also had a Nikon monitor, and then he also was doing bedside ultrasound. So he had all these different modalities, and when he asked, why do I do all of these different methods of monitoring, the rhetorical answer he gave is because he said, I don't believe any one of them, but I take all of that information together and then interpret it and follow trends. And so I kind of have always kept that in mind, that instead of only having one piece of information to hang your hat on and only follow that, I think just as you were doing, using multiple ways that you evaluate and then follow the patient. So I think seeing that the person's EF was very, very stunned, knowing that in addition to fluids, and then leave a fed that the person was going to require some dobutamine. I, I fully agree with that. Cardiogenic shock is probably, I think, the most challenging to deal with because the root of all the other types of shock that we manage, you know, all the, the different types of distributive shock, particularly, you know, septic shock and anaphylactic neurogenic, we all have ways that we can deal with that by, again, fluid loading and pressors, but if they're still reliant upon a functioning heart. So if the heart is not working very well, we try our best to maximize it, but I really do think that it's the most challenging of all types of shock. And so I think we just need to keep reminded that if we have the resources at our disposal, and we do believe that it's cardiogenic shock, that that may be time that we call in some of our colleagues to assist, and that may be with a balloon pump, or it may be if we're at tertiary care places that may be able to assist with other mechanical means by doing temporary uh, intravascular um, ventricular assist devices, or even putting the patient on AV ECMO. I know all of that is quite time-consuming, but if you do believe the patient has a good chance of having reversibility of the underlying condition, then it may be worthwhile. What we hope for when we have someone with severe cardiogenic shock is that we hope we find that it is indeed ischemic, and so we can readily reverse it by getting that person reperfused. Exactly, correct, uh, exactly. You know, while we're doing this at the same time, we activated the CAF team, at this time, I felt this was a cardiac event. And like you said, the sensitivity of an EKG in a cardiac arrest patient is well documented to be very poor. Uh, we actually repeated the EKG 30 minutes later, and I started seeing some questionable widening of the QRS. We treated her for hyperkalemia. Potassium came back to be four, so we were wrong. But... I felt she was in need of a intervention. So we did call the calf team. Calf team came. Cafter, she had one vessel disease and found to be in severe 
cardiogenic shock and they placed an intraortic balloon pump. And now I received the patient back while she goes waiting a bed in the ICU. So now she's in my observational ICU in the emergency department, post-calf, one vessel disease. She has an intraortic balloon pump and she's still on levofed, on dobutamine, and we're still hypotensive. We start the patient on epinephrine drip. And I do want to put in parentheses that we did initiate hypothermia care. And since we've already done a podcast on therapeutic hypothermia for postcardiac arrest, we're not going to discuss this in this podcast, but the patient was undergoing cooling. And, you know, I turned around to my resident and really the fourth, you know, everybody talks about the three causes, but the fourth cause, I think nobody really takes in consideration, which you mentioned was, well, what's really our underlying cause? And let's try to find out what's our underlying cause because it's all guess. We you know one vessel disease, was that really the cause of her arrest? Did she have an arrhythmia? Was she septic? So we kind of shotgunned the approach a little bit. We started antibiotic and we started on antiarrhythmic. We put her on amiodarone drip. What else do you think? Well, do you want to elaborate on any of those points I just brought up? Well, I, I think it was, um, it was, of course, very prudent of you all to repeat the EKG since that is something that is a zero risk, minimal cost, and certainly a test that can, can be dynamic and can change over time. So I definitely agree with repeating it. I was glad that it was able to pick up something that was maybe helpful to get her to the cath lab. Single vessel disease can certainly be a pretty devastating condition, especially if it's in someone that maybe have only had relatively minor obstructive coronary disease, so that if they didn't have collateral vessels, then a single vessel occlusion, especially if it's relatively proximal, certainly can be enough to cause a lot of myocardial injury and stunning. So we, we see that a lot in our younger patients. This patient I know was 67, but I've had handfuls of patients that were in their 40s that probably had, you know, 40% or 50% lesion, not nearly enough to cause them to have had symptoms of angina. These patients often were relatively active, but when they actually had rupture of that plaque and a coronary thrombosis, they actually got relatively sick because they had zero collateral flow around that. So it is possible just for single vessel disease. So now we've got her reperfused. She had her PCI. She does have a balloon pump in place, and she's still hypotensive, which oftentimes it's going to be literature closed that it's typically about eight hours post-resuscitation, post-ROSC, that is, that the cardiac index reaches its nadir, and then the recovery is slow thereafter, and usually by about 24 hours, the cardiac stunning will be reversed. So you, you have a stretch to go, though, that you're going to have to continue actively supporting this woman before she may recover. I don't know if I have any other tricks in my bag to pull out. You're trying to prevent her from having any arrhythmias. So the amiodarone is ongoing. The balloon pump, I'm assuming, is probably on one-to-one right now. We, had to, we were on one-to-two because she was so tachycardic at a rate of 110, 112. And we were getting a better augmented pressure on one to two. With one to two, okay, right. okay. And, 
I do want to put a parenthesis for the, our audience that a intraortic balloon pump is generally put on full support on one to one, assuming that the patient heart rate is regular. If it gets to be too fast, too tachycardic, you may want to change it to one to two, but one just to make sure it's augmenting every other beat. If your augmented pressure is better, then you stay on it. But generally, one to two is a for us intensivists, we talk about as a weaning, just starting to recover and getting better. So this patient is atypical to be on one to two. Well, I would agree with the considering, again, I think it would be very similar to what we do with the early goal-directed therapy for sepsis, and that epinephrine can either be added to the ongoing pressors or replaced. I typically add it too. I, I don't know how it would really work to quote, just replace one with the other. I, don't, I really don't, wouldn't know logistically how to best do that. So I typically, if I haven't been, met my goals as the patient is already on, say, I believe you had her on Levofed plus had added the dobutamine. And if they still hadn't reached their goal, I would typically then start adding on the epinephrine, even if it's potentially with decreasing one or the other of the original pressors, but add, adding it on. And that's actually exactly what we did, Joe. We, you know, I feel also that epinephrine is a strong second choice vasopressor, and specifically in this case, again, there's no data supporting, you know, epinephrine as a second choice in postcardiac arrest. But we do have significant amount of data in, you know, septic patients. So I think it was my second choice. So we did start her on, you know, epinephrine, and now we're finally getting a pressure of 90, systolic blood pressure of 90. And of course, now everybody asks, turns around and asks me, well, what's your mean arterial pressure? And so my, one of my residents goes, well, let's go to a mean of 65. And I, and I say, well, why 65 and not 100? Can you shed the light on some of the data from therapeutic hypothermia on those mean arterial pressure? Sure. I, I believe you were yeah. saying why... Now that you've reached your, your target systolic of 90, why, why would it also be a, a MAP target of 65? Well, yeah, it's the, in the therapeutic hypothermia, Bernard kept his patient with a mean arterial pressure between 80 and 100. And they had, you know, people question whether the mean arterial pressure in postcardiac crash should be between 80 and 100. So Ilcor said that the target for mean arterial pressure should be between 65 and 100. Yeah, the rationality should be, I think, you know, the minimum is going to be 65 because we just know that if you start dropping your maps below that, that your microcirculatory perfusion, uh, particularly in the brain, is going to be probably patchy and there's going to be areas of underperfusion watershed. But... If you know that the person's prior existing state was that they were hypertensive, then they may have certainly shifted so that they may require a higher MAP than 65. Your goal isn't always 65. It's, that's going to be typically the minimum for a young person, well, I shouldn't say young, but for a person who may have had existing normal tension prior, 65 may be reasonable. It's all really comes down to delivering, you know, blood perfusion with oxygen delivery and the organ requirements. And just as with brain injury from trauma, we do know that 
patients post cardiac arrest, they lose a lot of the vascular autoreactivity. They lose the ability to control perfusion through the brain by either relaxing or constricting the cerebral vasculature. So it's pretty dependent upon maintaining a relatively constant blood pressure so that the cerebral perfusion is maintained. And so the 65 is pretty much the minimum map to keep a CPP because you would assume we don't typically place intracranial monitoring in patients after after cardiac arrest the the way we do after a traumatic brain injury. So we're assuming that these patients likely have normal ICPs But that assumption may be wrong. If the person has already suffered a lot of brain injury, especially during the reperfusion phases, they may actually have quite a bit of third spacing of fluid across the blood-brain barrier, maybe developing interstitial edema of the brain, which, of course, is going to cause higher ICPs. So based on that, we would want to, of course, maintain perfusion pressure, usually of, say, minimum of 50 to 60 so if you're thinking that the ICP is going to be, quote, normal, 10, 10 or 15, then you have to maintain a map of 65 to have a CPP of at least 50. So that's typically where those numbers come from. Correct. That's a great. Um, and you did touch on a little bit of the cerebral edema and swelling. This patient started developing some myoclonus, which I felt was myoclonus. Uh, versus shivering, you know, I don't routinely do EEG monitoring on uh, my post-cardiac arrest patients because of lack of resource, but, you know, there was question, my resident was saying maybe she's having seizures, maybe she's not having seizures, is this, is this shivering? Is there a recommendation of starting post-cardiac arrest patient on anti-seizure prophylactically? No, there's, there's no good evidence to say that the patients would require prophylactic antiepileptics. If they were witnessed to have a seizure at any point in time during the arrest or during the initial resuscitation, then it would be considered prudent to load them with an antiepileptic for ongoing treatment. But there is no good recommendation right now for prophylactic. We all do know that there is relatively frequently post-arrest that we do see patients having isolated myoclonus. That is somewhat different than if they're having so-called status myoclonus, which is ongoing, really unrelenting, full-body myoclonic activity. That is considered to be a, a poor prognostic factor, but does not have high reliability in the early phases to say that it really portends such a negative, a negative outcome that really, you know, not much can be done about it. An EEG would be recommended early on with therapeutic hypothermia if you were going to paralyze the patient. If the patient was having such degree of shivering as the therapeutic hypothermia was either being induced or as you'd reached your set point, and again, I know we're not going to talk a lot about it, but it is one important point that the EEG particularly a continuous would be necessary if you're going to keep that patient paralyzed because then you would have no clinical way to monitor that patient for seizure. And we do know that absolutely ongoing seizure activity in a just being resuscitated patient is one of the most devastating events to that patient's neurologic recovery. So have the patient sedated, I think is fine. And if myoclonic 
where shivering activity begins. And typically, most people would use either, there's several classes of medications that can be used. Propofol is often effective. Benzodiazepines are effective or opiates are effective, as well as dexmedetomidine, magnesium. There's many, many different choices to just keep the patient from shivering. But if you do opt to go right to paralyzing the patient, then it would be recommended that you have some manner of monitoring for seizure, so an EEG would be recommended. Yeah, and I'd like to take two seconds to talk about sedation in those patients, and actually that might even dedicate an entire podcast. But, you know, you often see in the hypotensive patient on vasopressors who are hypotensive and, you know, the nurses or the, even some doctors will say, well, don't start sedation such as propofol because it's going to drop the blood pressure even more. Don't start benzo because it's going to drop the blood pressure. And we often see some patient unsedated. I feel that, you know, we need to add sedation. I, in this case, I use propofol. We did drop the blood pressure a little bit, but, you know, I felt it was volume-induced, so I gave her uh, 500 cc's of saline, and her blood pressure came back up. Uh, once we put on propofol, whether her shivering disappeared, and I was saved. But is this me? Is this, is this a personal pet peeve of mine, or do you also believe that, you know, we need to sedate patients? I mean, that we're under-sedating patients. Well, I, I do agree with you. The recommendations typically in anyone post-resuscitation now would be, it would typically help cerebral protection to minimize really the oxygen consumption, not, not only from the shivering, but if the person is having restless movements, even if they're, quote, not awake, they're not opening their eyes, they're not following commands clearly, but they're restless, they're agitated, we do know that that's going to be consuming oxygen, not only by their muscles, but clearly also would be potentially by their, by their CNS. So we do want to quiet that down. We do want to block the catecholamines that are being released. So some level of sedation is necessary. It's, I, I think the thing that would be prudent to say was that you want to keep the patient comfortable. You don't want them to have, obviously, any amount of agitation, but the, the smallest amount of sedation necessary. And I agree, propofol typically would be what I would like to use because it's going to be readily reversible. It's not going to build. Um, and I also agree that typically the, the hypotension that may occur is going to be due to some venodilation. And so usually can be dealt with by volume challenge. I usually prefer to use propofol as well as it is going to be very good for, for decreasing the, um, the shivering response. Correct. Okay, well, I think we went around postcardiac care. Again, our patient was admitted to the ICU, and she's on day two. She's showing some sort of brain activity, and there's more. Maybe we'll, I'll give a follow-up on the next podcast. Anything you want to say or you want to recap? Well, two final things to say in closing. Number one, I'll just reiterate that a lot of times I've been involved in cases where either the patient got return of spontaneous circulation by EMS or with, were with us in the emergency department, and we're all feeling quite good that you know we had a good resuscitation, we did a great airway, we did great CPR, we got a good IV access, and we gave the person good ACLS medications, and now the patient has a good saturation, even have a good blood pressure, but we cannot forget that there was a reason why this patient was just dead 
and they will arrest and be dead again unless we figure out what the underlying cause was. So besides feeling good about what we've just done with the recess, we do need to be scrupulous to get quick information, history from any of the bystanders, EMS family, and comb her over with a good secondary exam to try to come up with what would be the reversible cause of this arrest so we can identify it and hopefully keep her from continuing to arrest. So that would be the one point. And the second is we still are really looking to continue to optimize our post-resuscitation care. We're, we're making improvements, and I think the next phase will be to continue with this, quote, early goal-directed post-resuscitation care. And there, there still is a look for what medications we can best use for improving, you know, the myocardial effects, because we do know that there's this significant myocardial stunning and the vasodilation. Unfortunately, the gross effect of a lot of the potent vasoconstrictors are constriction of the microcirculation. So you, you may hear some things out there about using some medications that, believe it or not, cause vasodilation in the microcirculation while still trying to maintain enough vasoconstriction in the quote macro circulation. So of your large arterioles while maintaining dilation in the microcirculation. And then the last thing, the quest for the Holy Grail is still to come up with some medications that can prevent the post-arrest reperfusion injury. There's been many, many medications since I was in graduate school back in the late 1980s. They were looking for things that would block the free radicals, block the glutamate spike, block the calcium influx, and so forth. And so far, there has not been any medications that have been shown to be very helpful. But there's some people looking and a little bit of evidence pointing to possibly, believe it or not, using epigen post-arrest because of the neuroprotective, antioxidant, anti-apoptotic effects as well as the improvement in nitric oxide and improvement in endothelial dysfunction. So it may be in the future, we may, after we get a little bit more evidence, that uh, we may end up giving some of these patients epigen post-arrest, and we'll see. Wow. I haven't heard about this. Great. Well, I want to say thank you very much for participating in this. I want to remind our audience that this podcast is intended to provide guidance for the clinician caring for the post-cardiac arrest. It is in no way to replace the clinician decision-making. I know there's some you know, tertiary hospital out there don't have echoes or bedside ultrasound uh, available. This is mainly to optimize the care. And thank you very much, Joseph, for your time. David, thanks again for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to do this and talk with you. I enjoyed it. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of relevance for emergency physicians. Also, join us in New York City for the 20th Annual AAEM Scientific Assembly, February 11th through 15th, 2019.
2014. Visit www.aaem.org aaem14 to register and for more information.